Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Today, I'm looking at the community of Fort Francis, Ontario. It's got a really cool history, some really cool sites, and some really cool stories. So let's get right to it. Indigenous History Long before the arrival of Europeans, the land that would be Fort Francis was inhabited by the Anishinaabe people. Nearby to Fort Francis was the traditional meeting place for the regional Anishinaabe, and during the 19th century, they would gather there for the large Grand Council meetings. These councils would serve as the center for regional Anishinaabe decision-making and dealing with issues such as relations with new settlers, land allocation, and trade. In 1873, Treaty 3 was signed and land was allocated nearby, titled the Agency Indian Reserve. But this was not surveyed for a particular indigenous band, but as the center for the Indian agent of the region. By 1883, the government had banned the Anishinaabe and other indigenous from using the land for traditional and ceremonial purposes. This was done because the government and the Department of Indian Affairs believed that Grand Councils were a threat to its control. Today, several First Nations are located around Fort Francis and along the shores of Rainy Lake. In all, an estimated 2,600 Indigenous live in the Fort Francis tribal area, along with 3,200 Indigenous who live off-reserve. The Forts The first European to arrive in the area was Jacques de Noyon, and he would build a temporary camp in the location that would be Fort Francis. The era of Fort Francis begins with Pierre Gautier de Valenay, the first commander of the Western District and the person who established the fort itself. Fort Francis would be the first European settlement west of Lake Superior, but it was not called Fort Francis. Named Fort Saint-Pierre when it was established in 1731, the fort was established by a few of Pierre's men who agreed to journey west as winter approached to establish the fort. In July, Pierre arrived at the fort and then continued west to the Lake of the Woods. There, he set up Fort St. Charles, and soon Fort St. Pierre fell out of use and was closed in 1758. In 1775, Fort Lac La Pluie, or Fort Rainy Lake, was established by the Northwest Company, although it could have been as late as 1787. Located on the high bank to the west side of Fort Francis, the site is marked by a granite boulder today. Rather than be a trading post, the fort was a depot and it served as an excellent jumping off point for reaching the area of Lake Athabasca once the ice had thawed and the journey west could be conducted. It also allowed the traders to stock up on food before the journey west. In 1817, with the War of 1812 finished, the border redefined between the United States and Canada 
and the Hudson's Bay Company arrived to take over the forts in 1821 following the merger of the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company. In 1830, the fort would be named by Chief Factor John Cameron as Fort Francis to honor Francis Ramsay Simpson, the daughter of a London merchant who had married the governor of the Hudson's Bay Company, George Simpson, the previous year. The Founding of the Community With its close proximity to the United States, its role as a site of trading for the area, and a growing number of settlers moving into Canada and to the West, the community of Fort Francis began to grow. One of the biggest reasons for this growth was paper milling, which began in the area in the mid-1850s. In 1901, the Canadian National Railway came through, which would have a massive impact on Fort Francis. At the same time it came through, there was little in the area except for some settlers and a few buildings. In 1903, Fort Francis would be incorporated as a town and quickly began to modernize. One of the first acts of the new town was to create a fire department, and two years later a city hall that also doubled as a fire hall was built in Fort Francis. In 1904, the first telephone system was installed, connecting the town to the rest of the province in this new form of communication. From those early years, the community has continued to grow and is now a major tourist spot thanks to the beautiful landscape, fishing opportunities, and more. The Fort Francis Museum If you want to learn about the history of Fort Francis, one of the best places to visit is the Fort Francis Museum. While many museums are located in new buildings, the Fort Francis Museum is situated in one of the most historic buildings in the community. The Scott Street School was built in 1898 to fill the need for the growing capacity of the area for student education. Built for $2,500, the two-story structure would serve the community until 1914, when it became too small for the growing population. The school was still used for classes after 1914 when the Robert Moore School was built and even served as the high school. In 1928, the building became the home to the Royal Canadian Legion, which would use it for the next 40 years. From 1968 to 1978, it would be used as the Chamber of Commerce, the local police used it, and it was even an assessment office. In 1978, it became the home of the Fort Francis Museum. Inside the museum, you will find exhibits that incorporate artifacts from the history of the community dating back to the indigenous people, through the fur trade and into the pioneers. It also highlights the forestry history of the area that was so vital to the growth of Fort Francis. As part of the museum, you can also tour the Hallett, which I'll mention later in this episode, as well as the Lookout Tower. The 1903 Explosion I often like to look at the dramatic events in the community's history, and a few things are more dramatic than an explosion and fire that completely alters the landscape of the town. The same year that the town was formed, residents dealt with one of the worst events in its history. On February 2, 1903, at 3.30 p.m., an explosion at the rear of the Hudson's Bay Company store rattled the windows across town. The building itself had two walls and ends blown out and the roof fell in almost completely as the entire building erupted in flames. Within half an hour, the building was consumed. When the explosion happened, two employees were in the store and received considerable burns. Two customers in the store were also slightly injured. Interestingly, only the store was burned to the ground and it was a saving grace that it was winter. The amount of snow preventing the fire from spreading and the bucket brigade was able to take care of most of the flames. This wouldn't be the only significant fire disaster to hit the community. 
On June 17, 1905, a fire occurred that would destroy the Albertan Hotel, Hallbeck's Restaurant, Brecken's Bakery, Strain's Barbershop, Baker's Tailor Shop, Scott's Jewelry, along with two hotels, a bank, a clothing store, a drug store, a butcher shop, and a hardware store. In all, that 1905 fire cost $200,000 in damages, which would amount to about $7 million today. The Heritage Tour One of the best ways to discover the heritage of a community is to take the Heritage Tour, and Fort Francis has an excellent one. Using a heritage map that you can get off the town's website or from the museum, you'll be able to walk through the community to learn its history firsthand, seeing the buildings that are part of the history. On the tour you can see several great spots, some of which I will highlight here. The Sorting Gap Marina is built on the site of the original John Reed Sawmill that was built in 1902 and operated for several years. The logging industry used the marina area for decades, shipping logs in and sending them out, helping to grow the community. In East Fort Francis, you can visit the Causeway, which is a bridge that was built in 1958 to 1965 and measures 36 feet tall and over 4 kilometers long. Its construction cost over $7 million and the bridge to the west lifts to provide access for boat traffic. In West Fort Francis, you can visit the Fort Francis Cemetery, which was established in 1897 and includes a cenotaph to honor the men who gave their lives during the World Wars. There is also the Fort Francis Canal, which was built between 1875 and 1878, and you can visit the original location of Rainy Lake House, built in 1775. The Hallett Rainy Lake is a 932-square-kilometer lake that straddles the border between the United States and Canada, and for a time it was the domain of the Hallett. The Hallett was the largest and most powerful boat to operate on Rainy Lake, measuring in at 60 feet and weighing 57 tons. Built by the Russell brothers out of Owen Sound, the ship was so large that it had to be transported in pieces by railcar and then reassembled. Once in Fort Francis, it would be used by the local pulp and paper mill for years. As the years went on, the ship was modified to make it more suitable for the changing lumber industry. The single rudder was changed to a double rudder to make it more stable, and various other changes would come over the years, including changing the engines. Typically, the ship would haul 70,000 to 90,000 cords of wood every year, towing 4,000 to 5,000 cords of wood that stretched out a mile at a time. In all, it would make around 20 round trips a year. As with most things, times change and the modernization of the woodland operations and concerns related to the lake environment meant the end of the lake drive. By the 1970s, it was cheaper to haul logs by truck, and the Hallett would haul its last lumber in 1974. That's not the end of the story for the ship, though. In 1983, the ship was placed in Point Park, and in 2009, it was restored and moved to its current location at the Sorting Gap Marina. The Lookout Tower Nearby to Fort Francis, you will find quite a tall structure that stands out in the area. Called the Lookout Tower, it rises to 100 feet, and it got its start as a radar and lookout tower nearby before it was moved to Point Park at Fort Francis in 1972. In 2009, along with the Hallett, it would be moved to the Sorting Gap Marina. Originally, it was part of the Dewey Line, which was an early warning system for detecting a Soviet nuclear attack during the Cold War. Part of the Pine Tree Line radar net, 
Drills were conducted constantly between the United States Air Force Strategic Air Command and the Royal Canadian Air Force to test the radar operations. This particular tower was part of the Gap Filler Initiative to cover some areas that didn't have radar coverage. Unfortunately, budget cuts meant that it was built but never operational and it primarily served as a forestry tower, but by 1972 was not being used except for hikers who wanted a good view of the wilderness. Today, the Lookout Tower gives a great view of Rainy Lake and the surrounding wilderness around the community. The Rainy Lake Mermaid One of the most unique parts of Fort Francis is the Rainy Lake Mermaid. Many places will put up statues of mermaids on lakes or on oceanic coasts, but Fort Francis is unique in its mermaid. That sculpture was not created by professionals, but by a young man looking to avoid chores at the cabin, which the Lisney family owned since 1905. It was 1932 that Gordon Schlichting, a Minneapolis architect student, was visiting his cousins in Canada. Of course, at the time, they all had chores to do, and Gordon was not a fan of those chores. In an article in the Fort Francis Times, Kurt Lisney stated that his cousin Gordon, quote, decided to do something better than hauling wood and water, end quote. Gordon would create the mermaid out of pieces of steel, boat propellers, and concrete, making it 1.5 times life-size. He would also build a mold of wood and tin and pour the mixture of concrete into it, and he then worked it with a hammer and chisel for five weeks to make the statue. At that point, he secured it with anchor bolts and reinforcing rods. His son Rolly would state in 1997, quote, Dad had to use a chisel to make sure the mermaid curved where she was supposed to curve, end quote. Of course, as the decades went on, myths would develop around the mermaid. One fisherman's tale said that the sculpture was erected in memory of a drowned girl by the man who had seen her boat sink in Rainy Lake. Another story said that a world-renowned sculpture artist made the mermaid while out on vacation. At least that one is half true. Another story says that a French sculptor made the statue to honor his daughter who drowned in the lake. Gordon would go on to become a highly renowned architect in the United States, especially in Minnesota, and he would often come back to see the mermaid creation, which has now outlasted him after his death in 1997 at the age of 83. The 1946 Tornado It was on a beautiful summer day when the sky suddenly darkened in Fort Francis and a harbinger of doom arrived. Suddenly in the evening of June 25, 1946, a strong wind of 100 km an hour suddenly hit the town, with some gusts reaching 120 km per hour at some points. The strong wind preceded a tornado that hit the town. Dan Mainville would have the roof of his home torn off and the walls blown in. Inside, his 10 children were struck by falling timbers, and while they were injured, the injuries were thankfully minor. As the tornado moved through the community, it twisted homes from their foundations, uprooted trees through trucks and tires, including an 18-foot rowboat, while also snapping telephone and telegraph poles. The J.A. Matthew Lumberyard was severely damaged, and the 100-foot tower owned by the Ontario Land and Forest Department toppled. Jay Cunningham escaped injury when his boat was tossed in the wind, and he would say, quote, It gives you a funny feeling to see things flying around your head, I could hardly believe my eyes for a moment. End quote. Mrs. Kim Ross would say, quote, It made me feel sick inside. End quote. In all, 12 people were injured, but no one was killed. 
Damages were put at $500,000 in the community, which is roughly $7.6 million today. The second tornado in eight days hit Ontario. The first was in Windsor a week ago yesterday. Last night, another one whirled across the international boundary and struck Fort Francis. Jack McLaren of CKFI interviews a man who dodged a rowboat and a building in the storm. Life in Fort Francis is gradually turning to normal today after the worst storm in the history of the town. Citizens were hard at work today clearing lines, trucking away fallen trees, and repairing buildings. Electric power was restored to most sections of the town today, but some areas may still be in darkness tonight. No one knows exactly what happened. It was so sudden. But here is Mr. Jim Cunningham of Fort Francis, who was on the Rainy River waterfront, one of the most badly damaged areas when the storm struck. Mr. Cunningham, will you describe in your own words what you saw? Well, I see a boat flying over my head, and I wheeled back, and I happened to look up, and I see a part of a building going over my head, which landed right in my lawn at the right in my front of my house, buried it about two feet in the ground, some of the two-befores. It was the worst I ever seen. I don't want to get caught in another one. Do you ever remember a storm uh, this bad in the Fort Francis area, Mr. Cunningham? No, I never seen one like it. I see. Um, just where were you? You were down on the waterfront when the storm struck, were you not? Yeah, right in front of my own place. And, uh, and how, how big was that boat that, uh, went flying by your head? Twenty foot. Twenty foot long boat? Yeah. And, uh, part of the boathouses, you say, too? Yeah, the roof and part of the side. You must have had a pretty narrow escape then. I'll say I did. What did the storm look like? Well, it just looked like when it was coming, it just looked like a big black cloud whirling around and around, hanging down like... A uh, big black cloud yeah. whirled round and round. Uh, was How um, strong would you say the wind was? Well, I couldn't say that. I, it was plenty strong. I figured it was going to pick me up and take it with me any, at any minute. And what did you do? I run and got in the car. We had an awful time getting in, into it. I suppose you and got a pretty bad scare, didn't you? Yeah, I'll say. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mr. Cunningham, for that very graphic account of what happened during yesterday's storm. On June 28, 1946, the town made the decision to get tornado insurance in case a similar tornado ever hit the town again. The Memorial Arena was soon insured against windstorm, hail, explosion, riot, impact by aircraft and vehicles, and smoke damage. The Tim Hortons Took One very unique event occurred in Fort Francis on December 11, 2014, and the community was buzzing with news about yarn bombing trees, mailboxes, and park benches in town. Two days later, long strings of yarn were found across the community. In order to discover where the yarn led to, residents began to follow the yarn. The eventual destination was the local Tim Hortons, which had a giant knitted toque and scarf on top of the building. The entire social media campaign was done as part of an effort by the company to get 10,000 hats donated to children in need, and 2,000 blankets donated to a Toronto shelter. So why did Fort Francis get the big toque? According to Tim Hortons, they wanted to spread warm wishes one more time by creating the warmest Tim Hortons in Canada in one of the coldest places, Fort Francis. One of Canada's most ubiquitous coffee chains gives one of the country's coldest places a warm and cozy makeover. I'm Jen Markham, I'm Buzz 60. Temperatures in Fort Francis, Ontario average about five degrees in December. One reason Tim Hortons chose the spot to give back to its customers who donated thousands of hats and blankets to needy families through its Warm Wishes campaign. 
One morning, residents found red yarn everywhere, connecting yarn bombed park benches, fire hydrants, even trees. And of course, the yarn all led to a Tim Hortons that had not only been topped with a giant knitted hat and scarf, but had its interior completely yarn bombed as well. Couches, tables, walls, even the floor completely covered in wool knitting and hot chocolate and coffee was on the house. That's pretty cool. A behind-the-scenes video shows workers labored all night to complete the transformation, which was also a surprise to employees. That's just one giant hat. I always wonder about the waste created by yarn bombing. I mean, when is that restaurant ever going to wear that again? But maybe Tim Horton's hat and blanket drive can inspire some similar generosity. Like, is there some poor, shivering Starbucks up in Newfoundland we can send this to? The coldest temperature ever recorded in Fort Francis was minus 44.4 degrees Celsius. Of course, it should maybe be considered the hottest place in Ontario, since the hottest temperature ever recorded in the province was 42.2, recorded on July 13, 1936, in Fort Francis. Duncan Keith I often like to end episodes about a community by looking at someone who achieved immense fame. For Fort Francis, that person is Duncan Keith. Born in Winnipeg on July 16, 1983, his family moved to Fort Francis when he was only two years old. Playing minor hockey in the Fort Francis Minor Hockey Association, he quickly emerged as a standout player. In 2002, he was drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks in the 2002 NHL Entry Draft, and after some time in the minors, he made the jump to the NHL in 2005-06, recording 21 points in 81 games with the team. Over the next 1,192 games, he would have 625 points, including 105 goals. Along the way, he won a gold medal with Canada at the 2010 and 2014 Winter Olympics. He played in four All-Star games. He won the Norris Trophy as a top defenseman in the NHL in 2010 and 2014. He won the Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP in 2015. And three Stanley Cups were won by him in 2010, 2013, and 2015. To me, Duncan Keith is the complete package as a defenseman. When you think of Duncan Keith, you're just thinking of a freak of nature. Look at this guy, he never slows down. The more that you put him out on the ice, the better he is. It wasn't an easy route for him to get to the NHL. Here's a guy that was going to university, playing NCAA hockey, discovered for himself that it wasn't quite what he needed in order to be what he wanted to be, and that was an NHL player. And for me, I always knew that I had the hunger to, to play in the NHL and the, the desire, but players mature at different stages. So he made a decision, you know, to go play junior, which he did, and the evolution continued to the point where going through the minors was a good idea for him. Duncan Keith's a workhorse, pure and simple. And Duncan Keith's not a big guy but his durability is so good. He's one of those cornerstones for Chicago, and that's why they've won so many games, and that's why they play in June so many times. He's able to handle big minutes and big responsibilities. As the game gets deeper and deeper and the situations grow, the little things that he does and what he does for our team day in, day out, that's so we won a lot of big games. You know, he's one of those reasons why. Dunks takes so much responsibility off of everyone else with the minutes that he plays, the role that he plays offensively and defensively on, on all special teams. He's so committed to bettering himself and getting every ounce of his own potential out of himself every single day. With Dunk, it seems like um, he just needs a, a real quick reflection fresh and back he is at top condition. As a player, that's what you want. You want to be out in those situations, whether it's you're down a goal or you're up a goal and counted on from the coach. So you have to work hard for that and that has to be earned and that's the way it should be. On July 21st, 2008, Fort Francis recognized Keith by declaring the day to be Duncan Keith Day.
While he is still playing in the NHL, it is almost guaranteed that Keith will find his way to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And in 2017, he was named one of the NHL's 100 greatest players in its history. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Fort Francis, Ontario. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.